Well, good morning to each one, and greetings in Jesus' name, our Lord and our Savior. It is good to be with you this morning and worship the Lord with you. Samuel commented about being happy for a day of rest. I too am happy. I look forward to the weekends and a day of rest. God, God knows what we need, and He designed in His plan that we take a day of the week and rest and reflect on Him. It's dry outside. We've been praying for rain. God hasn't seen fit to bless us with rain yet. But even in that, we can, we can trust in Him. He knows what's best. He knows what we need. We, first song we sang this morning, that Brother Cody led, said, My shepherd will supply my need. No line says, in pastures fresh, he makes me feed beside the living stream. So it may be a drought outside, but we don't need to have a drought spiritually. We have God's word, and we can be well watered as we study that. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9 for the sermon text this morning. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 17. Titled the message this morning, A Call to Follow. Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. And I ask you this morning, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, what kind of disciple are you? Are you one that is sold out for Christ this morning? Or are you one that has one foot in the kingdom and the other foot planted in the world? How does Jesus want us to follow him? Obedience is the test of our true love for God. Are you walking in obedience to God's word this morning? Jesus makes this clear when he says in John 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said, follow me at least 13 times in the gospel. He uses these two simple words, follow me, to call Peter, Andrew, James, and John. As his disciples, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were fishermen. Jesus saw them casting their net into the sea. Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Also in Luke 9.23, it says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And what? And follow me. So I want to, the sermon this morning, I broke it up in two parts. First part, Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. And then the second part, we will look at the subject of fasting and the new covenant. Also here in Matthew 9. So read Matthew 9. Verses 9 to 13 at this time. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, 
Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold, excuse me, they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So a bit of background or a history lesson here this morning. Rome had imposed martial law and military rule over Israel. They had conquered Israel. And everywhere the Jews went, they would see these Roman soldiers that were armed. Then they would also see these small booths that were set up along the road. And in these booths were not Romans, but fellow Jews who decided to work together with the enemy and they would take money from the Jews and give it to the Romans. And the Romans would sell the right to a city, to the highest bidder. You would have several tax collectors that would want to collect this tax from the city of Capernaum, for example. The Romans would then invite those tax collectors to submit bids to be able to collect the tax of that city. The Romans would then give the contract to the one that submitted the highest bid. Then that tax collector would set up his booth, his tax booth outside the gate. Then he would tax the people enough to pay Rome so he could pay what he had bid on the contract Plus, he would try to get whatever he could extra above that tax to pad his own pocket. And that's the setting we have here. And this would create an incentive for the tax collector to charge above and beyond what he had bid to Rome. And by doing so, he would be able to create wealth of his own. So these tax collectors became hated in society. They were considered traitors and they were thieves. If you were to take on the role of a tax collector, you were immediately kicked out of the synagogue. You were not allowed to enter or even step foot inside of a synagogue. Not only you, but your entire family would assume the same disgrace that was upon you. This was the kind of individual that Jesus is speaking to here when he says, follow me. Now when I think of the other disciples, the fishermen, they were probably pretty well, well off. They probably had a pretty, pretty good occupation. Then Jesus comes by this booth and invites Matthew to join him. He says, you follow me. So let's think about what's going on here in this story. They had been with Jesus. And they saw him do some amazing things. He healed the paralytic. And after he does these amazing things, Jesus walks by this publican or this tax collector, walks by his booth, which the rest of us don't even want to come close to because we dislike this guy so much. Jesus walks right up to the booth 
and says to Matthew, who is sitting there, he says, come and follow me. Jesus chose for one of his closest followers, a man who was hated so much by society. Another thing that amazes me in this story is that Matthew didn't hesitate. He jumped up and followed Jesus. The same story in Luke's account tells us he got up and left everything to follow Jesus. Is that significant? Matthew stood up at once, leaving behind a lucrative career. A career in which he was most likely wealthy and in one he would most likely continue to increase in wealth. He left it all behind to follow Jesus. Notice the response that Matthew makes regarding the call of Jesus Christ to follow him. And this challenges me. Matthew makes a radical decision to leave one thing behind, which is the life that he had been living, to take on or follow after another life. And that was to follow Jesus Christ. Have you responded to that call this morning? I believe you are planning for baptismal service next Sunday. And that is such a blessing to the church when young people choose to follow Christ. Many people don't respond as Matthew did in a radical sort of fashion where he leaves their old life behind to take up the new life of following Christ. Sometimes we'll see a half-hearted response where you have one foot in the kingdom and one foot still solidly planted in the world. Kind of following the lordship of Jesus Christ, but also following the leading of the flesh. In the book of Revelations, Jesus calls it lukewarmness. Sometimes hot, sometimes cold. It's not hot and it's not cold. It's lukewarm. Matthew, in his previous life of being a traitor to his own countrymen, makes a clean break from the old life and beginning to walk, begins to walk with Jesus. Matthew is showing us here an example of what it means to follow Christ. Putting off the old sinful lifestyle and taking on the new. Making a clean break from the old lifestyle and taking on a new life and following Jesus. I would imagine that Matthew was making a lot of money at his job. But what does Jesus say? You cannot serve God and mammon. Neither can you serve God and at the same time serve something else. Whether it is yourself, your pleasure, or whatever else it may be. You cannot make God the Lord of your life and have something else have a position of lordship at the same time. You cannot have two lords. Ultimately, you're going to end up hating the one and loving the other. So here in verse 9 we see this whole idea of making a clean break. Jesus said, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Then in verse 10, 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many sinners and tax collectors came and ate with him and his disciples. Here Matthew had received the call. He had radically responded to that call by closing up shop on the old life of serving self and sin and following after Jesus with all his heart. This is the same day that Matthew's friends and co-workers are there at his house because he is having a feast and Jesus is the guest of honor. See, where Jesus was, you had a crowd, you had a following. Matthew, who was also called Levi, which it doesn't make reference to here, I find it interesting that this book is written by Matthew. Here we have a gospel writer who writes his own story. He is writing about the life of Jesus and what happens next. The Lord calls Matthew. How neat is that? Here we have Jesus at Matthew's house. And this place is crowded with all these people that are there. Notice that it says many publicans and tax collectors were there. These were other tax collectors from nearby cities. And it tells us that the publicans and sinners were in attendance. Aren't we all sinners? The Bible tells us that we have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, so we're all sinners. So how could they label these people? In the NIV, it puts quotations around the word sinner. But those quotations don't appear in the Greek translations. And they do that to convey the idea that these people are notorious sinners as opposed to private sinners or someone that hides their sin. God doesn't recognize any difference. Sin is sin to God. But you do have people who sin in private. And then you have those that sin openly. They just don't care. They're out to do their own sin. And they don't care who sees them. And we could call them notorious sinners. And these are the ones that Jesus is sitting down with at Matthew's house. And having supper with. And that caused problems with the Pharisees. Notice in verse 11... It says, when the Pharisees saw that they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? You have to understand the significance in their culture that sitting down and eating a meal had. Sitting down and eating a meal together was considered to be an intimate connection between people because they shared from a common dipping bowl. A common thing for a meal was to have a dipping bowl. Have a bowl in the center of the table where each person was given bread as well as other things and they would dip their bread into this bowl. So they were all dipping into this same bowl. And double dipping was not a problem. That was okay. You would dip in, take a bite, and then dip again. So these Pharisees believed to have dinner with a sinner was to compromise your holiness, your righteousness, your right standing before God. They believed if you eat from this common bowl, you will become defiled if you eat with a sinner. 
So what are they, what they're accusing Jesus of is more than just hanging out with these sinners. They really believe that he will become like them. They believe that he will become defiled by them, by eating with them. Pharisees had a hard time understanding how in the world somebody who wants to live a holy life would ever hang around someone who needs Jesus. They don't understand mercy. And Jesus will confront them with that here shortly. They believe that to hang out with a sinner, someone who is living a life of sin, is to compromise your holiness. In verse 11, they ask the question, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? They believe that he would defile himself, that he was compromising righteousness and holiness. They had become so fixated on rules and regulations that they could no longer recognize human need when they saw it. Their legalism had rejected this idea of mercy or tender love and care and concern for people. So what Jesus was doing by eating with these people was expressing the mercy of God. God is merciful. He will hang out with them so that they might come to a knowledge of his love. I like what Jesus said in verse 12 in his response to this. It says, But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. This puts the focus back on what he was supposed to be doing. This is what the Pharisees should have been doing. The Pharisees thought that in order to maintain holiness and righteousness, they had to separate themselves from sinners. Jesus, who is filled with mercy, filled with the mercy of God, goes and works among sinners. Can you imagine a doctor who devoted his life to healing people but wouldn't be around them? A doctor refusing to be around sick people. The Pharisees were always concerned about their own personal situation. Jesus said it's not the healthy people that need a doctor. You have to go out and find the sick people. That's what I'm doing, he says. Then he says in verse 13, here we have a quote from the Old Testament. Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This verse is a quotation from Hosea in the Old Testament. Prophet Hosea was living and prophesying at a time in Israel's history that was much like the time that Malachi had lived in. In Hosea's day, God's people were still good at bringing sacrifices, but they had forsaken mercy. And they abandoned mercy because they gave up the knowledge of God in truth. God would rather have right hearts full of truth and mercy rather than your sacrifice. So the Jews were going through the motions of doing what they were supposed to do in terms of offering sacrifices to the Lord. But they came to a point of seeing those sacrifices as all that God wanted. 
We can live our own life and we'll just bring an animal, bring an animal in every so often and kill it and sprinkle the blood and go back and do what we want. The sacrificial system was meant to accompany a broken heart that hated sin and was broken because I had sinned. And now I go to the Lord and this animal dies in my place as a sacrifice for me. And the blood is sprinkled. And through that bloody process, it reminds me that sin is a messy thing. And at the time of Hosea, they had forgotten that. They were going through the sacrificial routine as if it was just a religious requirement. We can live the way we want. We can cheat, we can steal, and we can live it up. Then they go through the motions of sacrifice. They take a goat to Jerusalem and let them kill it and sprinkle a little blood and go home. Then Passover comes and they need a lamb. See how religion takes over where relationship once existed. Where my heart was in an intimate relationship with God, now it's become this empty religious practice. That's what was happening in the time of Hosea. And that's why God spoke through Hosea and said, Listen, I don't care about your sacrifices. I want mercy. I want your heart. I desire mercy. That's sacrifice. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Do you think I need this? I don't need your animals. I want your heart. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Did the Pharisees in Jesus' day learn anything from the cry of the Lord in Hosea? Now here today, Jesus is saying to them, you have stumbled the same way that your forefathers did in the time of Hosea. So this phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's think about that. I believe that's what Jesus was telling his disciples or challenging them to as to why he was here eating with these sinners. Maybe then you will have a better understanding of why I'm here reaching these people and bringing them to a saving knowledge of what I'm going to do on the cross. Sacrifice is important. Matthew sacrificed his old life that he might follow Jesus. We need to put ourselves on the altar. There are things that we as Christians do sacrifice. We sacrifice the old life, the old sinful desires. We sacrifice the passions of the flesh so that we might run after Jesus and fulfill those desires and passions. We do sacrifice, but we must also reach people's lives. You don't need to turn to this, but in Galatians 6 verse 1, 
Paul gives us a balance of sacrifice, mercy, and caution. All together in one verse. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying if you come across someone who is caught in a sinful behavior, I want you to operate with the same mercy that moved the Lord Jesus to go have supper with people who are sinners. You need to love them. You need to reach them. And you need to share the gospel of Jesus with them. But there is also a warning here in this verse. The warning is be careful and watch yourself. Sin can be alluring and seductive. This is a warning for you and me. Reach people for Jesus, but be careful while you do it. It's not a bad idea to take someone with you for accountability. So you ask the question, how do I show the mercy of God? I reach out to the lost, and I also take action. Make sure that where you're going to reach them, you don't compromise. Jesus went and had supper with sinners, but he didn't go and participate in their sin. Verse 13 says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Every one of us who are born again were one day lost. Before we came to the Lord, we were lost, wandering around without any idea where we were headed. And our call as Christians is to seek the lost. In the name of Jesus, seek the lost. Bring them to Him that they might be saved. Are you actively reaching the lost? What are you doing in your life to reach the lost? I have four things. There's many things that you can do. But I have four I'll give you this morning. Prayer is an important key in salvation. Pray for people's salvation. You and I can be used in the kingdom of God to reach the lost. And prayer is an important part of that. I'm sure we all can think of someone who is lost. Pray for them. Pray for them in the morning when you get up. Pray for that person throughout the day. Pray them before you go to bed at night. Pray that they would come to know the Lord as their Savior. Another thing you can do is invite people to church. Another thing you can do is give. Proverbs 3 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Some of you help with clubs, boys and girls clubs, and that's a good way to make a difference in young people's lives. All right, now I want to move into the second part, verses 14 to 17. We have questions about fasting. Matthew 9, verse 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? 
And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out. And the bottles perish, but they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. So here in verse 14, when it talks about John's disciples, it's talking about the disciples of John the Baptist. And at one particular point, the disciples came to Jesus. Or John's disciples come to Jesus, and they ask him the question, You know, we notice that you don't fast. We fast, and the Pharisees even fast. See, Pharisees were known for their practice of fasting, but they did not do it out of a spirit of humble repentance. They often fasted wanting to impress themselves and others with their spirituality. They actually did it like twice a week. They fasted twice a week. They fasted regularly. They say, but you all aren't fasting. We noticed you aren't fasting. Then verse 15, we have Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus responds with an interesting statement. He says to them, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's telling them there's an appropriate time for fasting. But this isn't the time. Jesus makes us aware that there are a lot of good times to do things. A lot of good reasons to do things. Then there are those times when things simply aren't appropriate. He then uses the example by saying... The bridegroom is basically with the bride. So why should they be sorrowful? That should be a time of great joy. So what, what is fasting? Fasting is a voluntary going without, voluntarily going without food so that we might devote or dedicate ourselves to prayer seeking God. It often accompanies times of sorrow. Sometimes mourning, as Jesus mentioned here in verse 15. There are also references in the Bible where fasting accompanies a time of seeking God. In the Old Testament, it was also often a way of expressing grief or a means of humbling oneself before the Lord. In Psalm 35, David humbled himself with fasting. Then in the New Testament, it was a means to grow closer to God through meditating and focusing on Him. In Matthew chapter 4 we read where Jesus went to the wilderness to fast for 40 days. So throughout the New Testament, fasting and prayer are often mentioned together. In Acts 13 they fasted and prayed. In Luke 2 a widow worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Jesus is basically saying to them, why would these guys 
sit and go without food in order to seek the face of God. God was right there with them. And they could just turn to him and ask them any question they had. This was a wonderful time in history when the God of the universe took on human flesh and dwelt among us in physical form. These disciples, these men, got to walk around with him. If you had a question, you just ask. They were together. So why would you enter into a time of fasting and really focus on God? God was right there with them. This is a time of rejoicing. And John's ministry was one of repentance, calling the nation of Israel to repentance. So fasting would go along with that. I mentioned earlier that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. But that didn't necessarily impress Jesus. Jesus gave his disciples some instructions how to fast. In Matthew 6, he said, don't be like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces. They walk around with a sad face. They want you to know that they were fasting. They have their reward. They have received their reward. Because they have been doing it for show. Let's turn to Matthew 6. Read verses 16 to 18. Matthew 6, verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which sitteth in secret shall reward thee openly. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders during Jesus' day, were doing it for the wrong reasons. But let's not miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. There are good reasons for doing these things. Like fasting, for example. And what is a tradition? Tradition is something that is passed down from generation to generation. And I think we need to be careful not to confuse tradition with the word. Tradition is fine if it has to do with the way that you spend your summer vacation or the way you prepare your turkey for Thanksgiving. But when they begin to revolve around the way that you serve God and the way you worship God, tradition can very quickly take on an authoritative, authoritative feel. And eventually people really won't know the difference between tradition and the Word of God and they begin to blend over time. So my concern is that we don't keep tradition at the expense of following the Word of God. This did happen when Jesus came on the scene in physical form in the nation of Israel. This is what was going on. Turn with me to Matthew 15.
Verse 1, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Then drop down to six, verse 6. The, the latter part says, Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. So it's easy over time for these religious traditions to become so much a part of our lives. And what we do, that we not only keep them along with the Word of God. So let's be careful we don't keep them in exclusion of the Word of God. What I'm trying to say is let's be careful. We don't make the commandments of God of no effect by our traditions. And that's what Jesus was confronting here in Matthew 15. All right, I'm back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. So anyone who washes clothes knows that clothes shrink when you wash them. If you take a new piece of cloth that has never been washed before and you patch an old shirt, it'll look fine the first time you wear it. But what happens when you go to wash it? But as soon as you wash it, the old shirt won't shrink, but the patch will. Because it has never been shrunk before, so it will want to pull away at the seam from where it was sewn. Jesus is using this as an example to say, I haven't come here to follow traditions and patch up an old system. I came to bring a new covenant, a new understanding. The new covenant doesn't just improve the old, it replaces it and it goes beyond it. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, Neither do they put wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So they would take grape juice after it's squeezed from the grapes and pour it into animal skins. Then they would tie it up and hang it in a cool, dark place and let it ferment over time. And when something ferments, it gives off gas. That's why they used animal skins, so it could expand and not break the vessel. But after an animal skin has expanded so many times, it will, bur- it will bust. So if you put new wine in an old animal skin and hang it up to ferment, it will burst and make a sticky mess. Jesus says they pour new wine into new wine skins and both are preserved. During Jesus' public ministry, he time and again had to address this resistance to change. They were thinking that Jesus was coming to patch up an old system or to use an old method for a new work of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to do that. 
I've come to bring a new covenant. These people were facing a big change. Today we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Today we're under the new covenant. The Old Testament tells us a new covenant is coming and it's different. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husbandman to them, declares the Lord. So you have the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and you have the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated at the Last Supper, where he took the bread and the cup. And when he raised the cup, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Hundreds of years before that, hundreds of years before that happened, the Lord through Jeremiah said that it would happen. God's going to make a new covenant. And it's not going to be anything like the old covenant. It's about Jesus and what he accomplished for you and I. It's for us to receive and believe. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. At communion we symbolize that we have received. We take the bread, we receive it. We take the cup, we receive it, symbolizing what Jesus did for us. Today we live under the new covenant where Jesus said, follow me. John thirteen thirty four. a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this will all men know, will all know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So in closing, obedience to the word of God is the test of our true love for God. Jesus said, follow me. He also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The song that was running through my mind as I was studying for this, we sang for the second song this morning. Sweet are the promises, kind is the word. Dearer far than any message man ever heard. Pure was the mind of Christ, sinless I see. He the great example is in pattern for me. Sweet is the tender love Jesus hath shown. Sweeter far than any love that mortals have known. Kind to the erring one, faithful is he. He the great example is in pattern for me. List to his loving words, come unto me. Weary heavy laden, there is sweet rest for thee. Trust in his promises, faithful and sure. Lean upon the Savior and thy soul is secure. Where he leads I'll follow, follow all the way. Where he leads I'll follow, follow Jesus every day. May the Lord bless the congregation here at Peak and each one.